coronavirus is showing us how important the social contagion aspect around diseases can be. And that's one place where we could have access to data, right? If you wanted to parameterize a good model for coronavirus, you would want to know what fraction of that population thinks uh, coronavirus is, is just like another flu or is a hoax or that social distancing doesn't work or that everything is dumb, right? You, you, you want to know what kind of misinformation is spreading and where so that your model can take that into account. That, that data exists out there. I think the idea that public health messaging, whether from officials or just individuals on social media, should probably be, be treated as public health data and therefore should be public in some anonymized way. But that would be incredibly useful for modelers and public health officials alike. Chances are, if you are listening to this around the time it was released, you're listening alone. Right now, the human species is conducting one of the most sweeping, synchronized experiments of all time. Physical isolation, restricted travel, shuttered businesses, our social lives moved online. Many people wonder whether all of this is truly necessary to halt the spread of COVID-19, or do not understand what differences there are between closed borders and closed schools and businesses, how epidemiologists derive the interventions they advise, and why it matters that we all stay home right now. For this special mini-series covering the pandemic, we will bring you into conversation with the scientists studying the bigger picture of this crisis so you can learn their cutting-edge approaches and what sense they make of our evolving global situation. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex systems science research center. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each episode will feature far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order. This week's guest is Lauren Hébert Dufresne, Assistant Professor of Computer Science at the University of Vermont's Complex Systems Center, former SFI James S. McDonald Foundation postdoc and research fellow, and editor of PLOS Complexity Channel. In this episode, we discuss how network epidemiology studies contagions as they unfold across multiple scales, how co-infections, both biological and informational, change disease transmissibility, and how the best available research supports drastic containment measures. Note that this episode was recorded on March 17th, and we'd like to issue a blanket disclaimer that our understanding of the novel coronavirus pandemic evolves by the hour. We believe this information to be up to date at the time of publication, but the findings discussed in this episode could soon be refined by more research. Due to the pace at which the news is changing, we'll ignore our normal schedule for the next few weeks and publish new episodes as quickly as we can. Please take a moment to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to suggest questions for upcoming guests on Twitter or in our Facebook group. Before we start, we'd like to remind you of our extensive free online learning resources at complexityexplorer.org, where you can learn about complex systems, chaos theory, agent-based modeling, and more from expert video instructors. We also have over 100 hours of recorded seminars and panels up on YouTube, and we'll continue sharing news and updates on our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn feeds. 
For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. To support our research and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash give. Thank you for listening. Laurent, it is a pleasure to have you here on Complexity in spite of the fact that you're on the show because we're in a uh, pandemic. It's one of those mixed blessings that you get to step forward and, and speak with some expertise and authority here. Yeah, so this is our first remote recording, uh, listeners, and it's appropriate to the social isolation, but it is, uh, you know, there might be some latency issues in the recording for which we apologize. So uh, you've, you've been looking at epidemic transmission, social reinforcement, contagion networks, and so on for years, and you've given us a couple papers to look at. I'm not sure whether this is the right place to start, but let's start here. You, you did a, a paper with Sam Scarpino and Antoine Allard, the effect of a prudent adaptive behavior on disease transmission. Right. From November, 2016. I mean, that seems like the simplest place to start. Why don't you talk a little bit about the gross outline of this paper? Right, so, so, so this paper <clears throat> started during the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, so in 2014. If you remember, back then the news was much more focused on how different the Western African societies were than our own. So there were a lot of conversations and, and news stories about traditional burial practice in West Africa and how that contributed to the spread of Ebola. So funeral practices that involved touching the body a lot and that, of course, would, would spread Ebola. Um, and, and those people are obviously going to be at risk. That's one of the first insights of network science in, in epidemiology is that you have individuals with just a lot more social connections, whether that's school teachers or funeral workers in West Africa. And those are going to be high-risk individuals. If the disease is going to reach someone first, it's probably going to be them. They have so many connections. Now, healthcare workers and funeral workers are in this weird position where they're really at risk, but they're also essential. So if a funeral worker gets sick from Ebola because of, of their job, chances are, you know, they get sick, they stay home for the next few days, someone else is going to take care of the funerals. So we're replacing high-risk individuals with new healthy individuals. And the same thing happens in any outbreak, really. It's just we, we can't afford, like right now we're talking about the capacity of our healthcare system. If nurses and doctors who are at risk get sick, we got to bring other people in. We got to ask other people to like put themselves at higher risk. So it's the idea that you have those high risk essential individuals that you keep replacing. And it seems like a good idea because you want to treat people and you want to take care of the burials, but that can accelerate the spread of the disease because you have this turnover of hubs in your, in your social network. Talk a little bit about the model that you created for this, and then you compared it to empirical evidence from a number of different outbreaks. Right. So, so the model is, is fairly simple. We use, we use the standard network models for disease transmission, which is simply you, you track individuals based on their current state, whether they're healthy, infectious, or, or dead or recovered. But you also track interactions. So how many interactions occur between healthy people or one healthy person and one infectious individual? And just having this network perspective just gives you the opportunity to model uh, social mechanisms. So in our case, it's the idea that people don't like being in contact with infectious individuals. The classic example I always give in talks is you go to the butcher you know, to buy a steak for dinner and you see you know, the person behind the counter sneezing all over the meat. You're just going to eat something else that day. right? So you're just rewiring that potential edge that you had with the butcher 
to whoever, the cheese maker, because you're going to buy cheese instead. So having a network perspective allows us to like account for local rewiring mechanisms that we all do, like that social distancing, that's us cutting links, that's us, so, so it's all very local network mechanisms. So we had a simple model of that with the idea that, that some connections have to be preserved because they're essential. So if my nurse gets sick, I'm just going to get rewired to a different nurse, right? That's healthy. And all that nurse is being put at risk. So that was a simple model. And it gave us this idea of, of super exponential spread. So the classic picture is, you know, I infect two people. They each infect two people. These four infect two people. So you get this exponential transmission tree for a disease. But this mechanism, because you keep refeeding new highly connected high-risk individuals into your population, you can get this super exponential spread, so faster than exponential. So we got the, the theoretical results, and we're like, well, has there ever been a disease where we think that there is a faster than exponential spread? And it turns out if you go in almost any flu seasons in the U.S. and almost any state, you're going to get this regime just before the peak of accelerating spread. Um, and that can be like social patterns, like what I'm describing now. It could be, you know, related to, to weather. So flu virus likes, likes dry weather. So that could be driving that. It could be it's flu season. We think about it more. We go to the doctor more. It could be a lot of things. But it seems like one, one of the most potent drivers of, of disease dynamics has always been social mechanisms and social behavior. So it seems likely, at least, that this, this, this could be one of them, this idea that when we think we're being prudent, something we, sometimes we make things worse for the collective by, by having a prudent, a locally prudent behavior. So there are some uh, implications that you discuss in this paper, and I'm curious how you see these results fitting in with COVID-19 and how we can make sense of this. Because you know, obviously one of the, the issues is that it's a lot more difficult to identify who has been infected, that there's a, a latency with symptoms. Right. How does that complicate this situation? Well, so when, when we published that paper in 2016, you know, we got some media attention and not all of which understood the subtlety of the model and of the results, I guess. So there were a few headlines that read, don't stay home sick. As if, you know, we were, we were arguing against uh, people staying home when they're sick. Of course, that's not the message. The message is stay home sick. And if, you do, if your, your job needs someone to take over, then they should take some preventive measures, right? So right now with coronavirus, the idea is like, if you are sick, absolutely stay home sick. If you can do your job remotely, do that. If you can't, well, maybe like your job can go without an employee for, for a while. If they have to bring someone in, it seems like it's probably a high-risk job because you got sick. And, and so that person should, should take additional um, measures to, to prevent their infection. The idea is just, you know, if a teacher gets sick, we're going to bring a substitute in if the school is still open. But that substitute should be aware that, you know, the virus might be going around the school and therefore the way they teach and just the way they interact uh, with people should, should, should change accordingly, which is just something we're not used to do in, in, in normal seasonal flu, flu um, outbreaks. There's another fold in this. I want to talk about beyond R0, the importance of contact tracing when mm -hmm. predicting epidemics. This other paper that you did with uh, Benjamin Althaus, Sam Scarpino and Antoine Allard. One of the problems that we're in now is is because of this latency that it's it's been extremely difficult to trace the contact network. Right. Nonetheless, 
I think it's worth getting a little bit into the the details. Uh, talk a little bit for those for those unfamiliar with this term, although I'm sure it's getting a lot more widely known. Uh, what is R zero? How do we measure that? And then why is R zero not enough? Where did this this paper fill in a, an important gap in trying to think about tracing epidemics with that value alone? Right. So so R R zero or R not is the basic reproduction number of a disease. The best definition is the simplest one. It's essentially the average or expected number of cases that you're going to create if you get infected, right, early in an outbreak. So if R0 is 2, that means that if I get infected early in an outbreak, you can expect that I'll infect, on average, two people. And that's a powerful number because, obviously, if that number is below 1 for every new case that you get, you expect less than one more case. So you don't even get a chain of transmission. So that means that you'd expect the disease to die out quickly. It's above one, you get like branching trees of transmission, and then you'd expect it to grow and to get an outbreak. So it's a powerful number because it, it gives you in one number sort of a aggregated metric for both how transmissible the disease is, how dense the population is, the behavior that people are putting into place, the intervention that is being put into place. All the complexity of disease dynamics and epidemics are, are put in one number which at least like below one, above one, gives us a quantitative idea of how transmissible it might be. It's really popular because of that. It's one number, so you, it's tempting to try and use it to compare different outbreaks. Or the classic example is the, the movie Contagion, which has that like five-minute scene of them trying to figure out that one number. But it doesn't tell you the whole picture. And, and there, my favorite example is the 1918 influenza epidemic and again, the Western Africa Ebola epidemic of 2014-2016, our best estimates for r not in both cases are around 1.5, right? Meaning that everyone that gets it, you transmit to like one person, maybe two. But really the distributions are much more complex than that. So for flu, maybe it's true that it was, you know, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, average of 1.5. For Ebola, it's much more likely that you infect no one and like I said, you have some super spreading events like funerals who end up infecting you know, dozens of individuals. So you can have the same average, but a very, very different underlying distribution. The reason why the average doesn't describe that distribution well is because whether you have this fact distribution where your average is driven by super spreading events will dictate how robust your epidemic is to intervention and to just like stochastic chance, right? So if, if, if an epidemic is driven not by the average individual, but by super spreading events, then an intervention that cuts an outbreak before you reach one of these events will be super effective. And it's much harder to intervene against diseases that, that spread very steadily, right? Everyone infects two people, that's way harder to fight against. One of the points in this paper is about how little we actually know about secondary infections yeah. with the 2019 novel coronavirus. So what insights does this paper offer in, in terms of how to address outbreaks when we have you know, such a profound unknown? And like when you know, the uncertainty in outbreak size is, is modeled everywhere from like, like you say, five to 40% of susceptible individuals. Right. Well, so that's the very tricky question. And that's why I guess I ignored part two of your previous question. Um, it's, it's very hard to measure the basic reproduction number because most diseases, we don't have a clear idea of who infects whom. Right. So we have something like that for 
for hemorrhagic fevers like Ebola, where people will put into place a contact tracing protocol. So contact tracing is, is in the title. And it's this idea that uh, when someone shows up sick at a treatment center or at a hospital, you might want to stay ahead of the disease. So if you have the resources, you go to their workplace, you go to their home, and you test people for, for early symptoms. And then you might be able to stay ahead of the disease and catch cases early. If you do that, you also get the great benefit of like, treating them well, but also getting the data of who infected whom and have an idea of this, this secondary number, uh, this number of secondary infections or, or of this RNA. So for Ebola, we have some contact tracing data and we do it well, but it's hard to do in real time. Right? It's like often during like, chaotic outbreaks and we often don't have the resources to do that. The data that comes there is, is, is noisy and hard to play with, but it's incredibly valuable. For respiratory infections, it's almost impossible, right? You get the flu, like, who, like might, maybe someone on the bus, maybe maybe someone at work, someone that touched the same door handle 10 minutes ago. It's just much more tricky. And then we rely on, on a lot of simulations. So we look at the time series and how much noise we see in the time series of cases. We simulate, you know, to the best of our abilities, diseases with different distribution of secondary infections. And we try to get a, a posterior estimate for what these distributions might look like. So we have like different ways. There's also a way through, through uh, if we have an idea about the mutation rate and if we see sequence a virus enough, we might have good ideas about who infected whom. So there are different ways to get to it, but none of them are uh, super reliable early in an outbreak, which is one reason why the, the classic models that only use one number to parameterize everything about an epidemic are still successful because we still struggle to go beyond that, even if, you know, obviously, my paper is saying we should, and I, people have been saying that for decades, but it's just very, very, very hard. <laughs> that seems like it tails us into the another paper that uh, you co-authored on school closures, event cancellations, and the mesoscopic localization of epidemics and networks with higher order structure. Uh, uh, I love that title so much. <laughs> yes. Because, I mean, it, it is, it, it, the title was meant to reflect sort of the, that sometimes very technical results like the mesoscopic localization of epidemics and higher order networks can inform us on why and how useful it is to, to do very concrete thing like close schools and cancel events. So that's why I love the title. <laughs> yeah. So as you've already mentioned, one of the main challenges here is the, as, as you and your, your authors put it, the, the failures of the surveillance system in this particular case. And we're pretty deep into the outbreak already. So I want to spend a little bit more time in a moment on some of the questions that have been coming up from folks in our social media audience. But one of those questions was about how do we know from the models how containment strategies at different scales work? You know, like when, you know, when is this about the distance you're taking, you know, from another person? When is it about a school or event closure? When is it about border crossings and closing those? You know, how do we understand how those different scales relate to one another? How did you model this in this, in this particular paper? Well, this is such a good question. Um, so, I won't get into the model right away. I want to first answer like, you know, what we know about the different scales and why I felt like we needed this mesoscopic scale. Um, so when I say mesoscopic, the idea is that microscopic is the individual. So that's me choosing to like, avoid a friend for a night. Mesoscopic is anything that involves multiple individuals. So that's school closures or events. And then the macroscopic would be, you know, mass quarantines at the country level. So let's say from the top down, like I think we know from history that mass quarantine don't work. 
or at least they don't work well, especially late in an outbreak. People find a way to avoid them. People need to travel and it's easier to make it easy for people to travel, but actually test them and track them as they do. So, so you know, I, I checked my visa status and requirements recently because, you know, I've been asked to comment about some of the decisions and the intervention from the U.S. And, and apparently I'm allowed to like criticize my host country. I'm Canadian. So, so inter- <laughs> but that's why, I mean, the intervention has been shipped because it's, it's focused a little bit too much on the, the macro scale and, and hasn't given much guideline to what I think in this outbreak is the critical, critical scale, which is the meso scale. So I've been organizing conferences and, and it's up to me at the end to decide whether I cancel my conferences or not, right? It was up to SFI to decide whether to shut down or not. And some places they can't make those decisions because they, they have to weigh like, the collective good uh, when facing the outbreak with the fact that their business maybe can't afford to close down for a month or two, right? And that's not a decision that anyone should be asked to make really, uh, to choose between their own business and livelihood or the health of their community. And we don't have enough. We don't have enough uh, information or even like knowledge, really, at the at individual level to make those decisions. So the intervention has been messy in, in that regards, I think. And then the kind of information that we would need is also is also not available, right? So a lot of people, you know, we, we cancel conference and we get emails from speakers who are like, oh, I think you're overreacting. There's only like at the time of the cancellation, there was only nine cases in, in Quebec where I'm from. And while that's true, there's a lot that goes into that, right? I'm sure other people will be talking to, will bring up the fact that, you know, this is an exponential curve. So when you're early on, you know, you don't want to use the number at at T equals zero to try and predict what it's going to be in two months because it's exponential spread and might be gigantic. But also it's not true that those cases are uniformly distributed in the population. We tend to think of like, oh, it's nine cases. Every person has like nine over N chances of being infected in this population, which is just not the case. Some people are more at risk. That's what network epidemiology has been telling us for decades. And some structures are more at risk. And that's why the mesoscale is really important. So you're much more likely to find, you know, cases in, in, in schools or hospitals or big events, just because that's where the most of the social connections occur. And therefore, that's where most of the infections are going to occur. So if the disease lives at this meso scale, which not all diseases do, but some do, and I, and I think this might be the case for coronavirus, then our intervention is much more powerful if it, if it operates on that same scale. And what does mean is that you, by closing a school, you delete, you remove a lot of those social connections that might spread the disease, but you also reduce the coupling across different schools that might still be open or across other structures. So it's really like an intervention that works in, in two ways by both protecting the individuals in that school, but also reducing the overall mesoscopic spread of the outbreak. So that's what it means really. The important is, is, is to try and think about what are the key mechanisms for the spread of this disease and individual interventions are super useful, washing your hands, social distancing, but you can spread to someone very inadvertently, right? By just touching something you didn't even realize you touched and 10 minutes later, they touched the same surface, touched their face. So unless you do it extremely well, those microscopic interventions are not gonna be super efficient. They work well for sexually transmitted infections, not so well for something as, as unknown. You don't even know if you're infected. We don't clearly know the, the mechanisms like coronavirus. So in that case, mesoscopic works much better in my opinion. So that's how I try and think about it. And so, you know, in the model, this is just about pruning at uh, different levels. So like the, I guess the question 
that I see coming up from people uh, is, you know, why 500 people going to a church service is the number that people are picking. It seems to a layperson relatively arbitrary, but you talk about the efficacy of interventions at different levels. So yeah, maybe a little bit more detail about how you actually uh, model these interventions and how it is that you and other epidemiologists are coming to these numbers and making these specific suggestions. Right. Yeah, so when we wrote the paper, I remember France had a, um, a ban on all gatherings of above a thousand people. California had another number, maybe 5,000 or 500. And now like my university, University of Vermont, we can still have like seminars on campus, but nothing with a crowd of more than 25 people. So the question is like, how do you, put, how do you pick 25? How do you pick 1,000? I, I think we have a good idea of just broad distribution. So we know those distributions are heterogeneous. We know there's, you know, hockey games in Montreal, that's what, 21,000 people. There's not that many like big events that occur like weekly um, in Quebec. And there are a lot of events with 50 people. We know how many like classes occur and all that. So we have an idea that those distributions are very heterogeneous and we have an idea of how heterogeneous they are. Similarly, we have an idea of how many social groups and events a given individual will, will participate in. So we have like broad ways to parametrize these, these types of networks that are, are created not by simple pairwise interactions, but really by higher order structure events and groups and classes. And once you have that, you can calculate the coupling between different structures. So if, if, if I start an outbreak in this hospital, maybe it's going to stay in the hospital, right? But if the coupling is strong enough, maybe it's going to be able to jump to other hospitals or schools. So then the idea is like, how much do I have to play with these distributions of, of participants per event to decrease the coupling? It's almost like, like bringing the reproduction number down below, below one, not at the individual level, but at the level of events and structures. Right? So it's just a coupling that you decrease by making less and less big event, and eventually you get this critical threshold, which is one in the case of r naught, something else in the case of this mesoscopic transmission, but then you like stop the spread at the mesoscopic level, and that's where those interventions can be super beneficial. And actually, you end up cutting less social interactions by doing it at that level than if you were just randomly cutting pairwise interactions or social interactions through social distancing. So it is a powerful metric, but it is very hard to like calculate or to estimate the critical size that you need because it's specific to different populations. We still don't know like just how transmissible the virus even is. So, so it is tricky, you know, in the paper, you know, 27, right? But that's, you know, for one set of parameters and a bunch of assumptions. But the idea is that you want to be safe, right? So, so this idea of like a thousand might, might be too much. Um, that's already a really big event and 25 might be, might be too low because then it's hard to operate. Not everything can move online. So in my mind, it's like this intermediate thing of like numbers like 50 and 100 sort of make sense. They're in the right ballpark. 25 is like very safe. A thousand is too much. It's hard to explain what it is, but, but you know, we have a good understanding of what they should be. And of course, the safer we are now, the better it's going to be in the long run. And my new philosophy is that like, like almost no events is really critical. Not, nothing is that important, right? Like I could cancel my class right now. My student might miss like some of my good jokes and a little bit of good material, but it's not that important. Like in, at the end of the day, it's not that critical. So like canceling events is really not that big of a deal. So there's another fold to this, 
which you talk about in your 2015 paper uh, in PNAS with Ben Althaus, complex dynamics of synergistic co-infections on yeah. realistically clustered networks. And I think it, you know it's important to stress that coronavirus isn't happening in isolation here, and that for a lot of people this has been a particularly vicious flu season. And in my own family, we're coming off of you know three weeks of head colds, right, just in time for campus closure. <laughs> right. All of this, right. you know. So there's you you've done some research into how modeling networks of different structures uh, changes our expectations when we're looking at diseases not in isolation, but co-infecting individuals. And I think it's, it's, uh, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it, this is an interesting line of work because we often are almost always model disease in a vacuum. Like you look at any models, it's rare that they're going to take more than one disease into account. And yet, like, we know that those things interact, right? The classic examples are more like sexually transmitted infections. So if you have syphilis and HIV, your transmission rate of HIV goes up by maybe a factor of 40, right? Syphilis makes, gives you, you know, surface wounds, which are going to just create more bodily fluid exchange, and you're going to transmit HIV a lot more than you would if you only only had HIV and not syphilis. So we know that like, for some diseases, it's incredibly important to take interactions into account. And interactions can be me- mechanistic like the one I just described. It could just be that you, know, you, have, you have the flu, it makes, it makes you weaker, makes your immune system weaker, and then you get you know, colonized by pneumonia or something else. Uh, so that's almost an indirect interaction. But it can also be just, um, you, know, you declare a state of emergency to fight Ebola in Congo. Well, then you're sending resources to fight Ebola and those resources, whether it's healthcare worker or hospital beds or actual dollars, um, they have to come from somewhere else. And they often come from somewhere else in public health interventions. So that's why Congo is now seeing, you know, more deaths because of malaria or cholera than they did before Ebola. So that's, you know, an indirect interaction that goes like through political and social systems. So we know those things, they all interact, right? In one way or another, and then we were just curious about how different would those models be. And of course, they become very hard to track because you need to keep track of my state regarding flu, my state regarding pneumonia, my state regarding somewhat, something else. So the number of variables and mechanisms just blows up. So, so it is harder, but it's doable. And when you do it well, you realize that they also have like completely different dynamical patterns. And, and the big one for me, that was a big surprise uh, back then, I guess in 2015, I think, was the fact that classic models almost always give us this monotonous relationship between the expected epidemic size, so how many people are gonna get sick, and the transmission rate, or R0 of a disease. So if R0 is below one, nothing happens, and when R0 goes above one, there's this monotonous relationship. The larger it is, the, the bigger the outbreak. All right, when disease interacts, it's not quite like that, right? You can, you can because the idea is like, maybe, I, maybe, maybe syphilis can spread alone, um, and HIV can't. And then if syphilis just gets a little stronger, then you can get this discontinuous jump where you go from almost no HIV epidemic to huge HIV epidemic, right? I don't want to use HIV and syphilis as an example too much because I don't know that much about sexually transmitted infections. But the idea is that when things interact, you can get this latent heat where one disease would be like, I would really blow up. If you, if you spread a little more, I'll blow up. And the other one could say the same thing. So if one of them gets like a random mutation, just gets a little more transmissible, then they both blow up, right? So you get these discontinuous jumps in epidemic size, which are just unheard of in classic models. 
So we know, and, and that dynamics can be very different. Um, the super exponential spread that we get with, with some social behavior, we can get as well with, with interacting diseases. So the, the, the range of possible behavior is just incredible. So it means that like, if we want to do robust forecasts, we need to take more than one thing into account and we can't model them in a vacuum, really. And, you know, I've been talking about different diseases, but what the coronavirus outbreak is showing us is that those contagions can also or maybe more easily be social and not and not so much other infectious diseases right so you get spread of misinformation of social media that's going to help coronavirus spread and if you want to get a good model to forecast the spread of coronavirus or to, to forecast the the effectiveness of interventions you have to take those contagion of misinformation into account because they're just as critical to the public health questions you're trying to ask as the virus itself i do want to get to the the work that you've done on informational contagions in relation to biological contagions. But first, I want to explore this just a little bit more because one of the questions that came up in the Facebook group was about how this relates to the the paper we were just discussing a moment ago. We, We know that it's not just the size of the events, but it's the network structure within them. So, you know, when we're talking about limiting events, you know, to say, you know, 50 to 100 people, but some of those events are school closures, some of them are sporting events, and the contact networks in those different kinds of events look different. So could you talk a little bit more about, like, specifically how randomizing a network affects the spread of co-infections, and then what that means for people who might have to make difficult choices about the, you know, the priority of events of similar sizes, and like, you know, how those events actually are structured. Right. So, so when you have multiple things that are spreading on a network, but co-interact together in a synergistic way, right? So misinformation and coronavirus or syphilis and HIV, they help each other spread. Well, these, these synergistic contagions, as I like to call them, also like benefit from this mesoscopic clustering of many people being part of the same structure. And that's also a little surprising because the classic models tell us that you know, clustering your, your social connections, social isolation is great, right? If, if the disease spread from me to my sister and my mom, then it can go from my mom to my sister if there's a triangle. So that triangle ends up being a wasted link for the disease. So clustering of connections is good in classic models. For synergistic interactions, not so much. The diseases or the different contagions like to be kept together, right? They want to be kept together because they spread better if they're together. And then having these like dense groups actually help their spread and makes those group hotspot for the spread of contagions. So that's just another way that the dynamics of interacting contagions is just very different from classic models. They interact differently with the mesoscopic scale. And I think if we went back, you know, to that, that paper where we use a really simple model to show this phenomenon of mesoscopic localization, if we did it with some form of interacting contagions that, that benefit from mesoscopic clustering, I think the results would be even stronger and would make even a better case for for closing certain certain structures. The problem is we don't have good data about co-infection almost ever, right? So for for privacy reasons, you know, you don't share the identity of the cases. So when we do like studies on flu, we have like flu incidence data. And when we do study for coronavirus, we have coronavirus incidence data. And we rarely know like who had both. The one thing we know for coronavirus now is that it seems like most most cases of deaths are due to people with pre-existing conditions. So that can be asthma, that could be another respiratory infections, could be cancer. 
So that's one way that there seems to be an interactions, but just in terms of spread or incidence, we rarely have coincidence data. So it's very, very hard to be able to do these models in the first place. And one thing that I, I'd like to make a call on is coronavirus is showing us how important the social contagion aspect around diseases can be. And that's one place where we could have access to data, right? If you wanted to parameterize a good model for coronavirus, you would want to know what fraction of that population thinks uh, coronavirus is, is just like another flu or is a hoax or that social distancing doesn't work or that everything is dumb, right? You, you, you want to know what kind of misinformation is spreading and where so that your model can take that into account. And we have access to that data uh, or some people do, I don't, right? That data exists out there. I think the idea that Public health messaging, whether from officials or just individuals on social media, should probably be, be treated as public health data and therefore should be public in some anonymized way. But that would be incredibly useful for modelers and public health officials alike. So you've led right into this last paper to discuss macroscopic patterns of interacting contagions mm -hmm. are indistinguishable from social reinforcement. This is one you wrote with Sam Scarpino and Jean-Gabriel Young. It seems as if what this paper and what you've just been talking about suggest is that if we treat beliefs as something that we can be infected by, then this is a, an instance where it becomes an, uh, especially obvious that there are benefits to associating online with people who, who have different beliefs than you do. That's a sort of a speculation. We can just table that for a moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, that does seem like it would sort of help randomize, you know, a contact network in sort of the meme structure of right. our society. And so anyway, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more deeply how, how you modeled and uh, what insights you drew from those models about co-infection of a biological contagion and a mimetic contagion and how right. that might change behaviors and so on. Well, before I get into the paper, that's, all, again, a very interesting point you bring up. Um, it's one thing that, you know, we haven't studied enough, but we tend to assume one or multiple network structures, but the connection between the physical, social, or contact network on which a virus might spread to the sort of virtual nature or delocalized nature of information network on social media is something that we don't study enough. Like we know they overlap, so we assume that to some extent they're very much correlated, but, but that would be interesting to look at the importance of how different are your, your physical networks and your information networks that mostly live online. And, uh, and, it, and the reason why that'd be important is, is in part because of this paper. So the way this started was in 2015, when, we, when Ben Althaus and I published a, the, our first paper on interacting contagions, a lot of the dynamical features that I talked about, so the idea that expected outbreak size is non-monotonous with respect to R0, um, or that you can have super exponential spread, or that these contagions can, interact, can, and can benefit from social isolation and clustering, all of that was brand new in, in public health modeling, but sort of old news in, in social modeling. So, you know, in, in social sciences, they've looked at contagions for a long time as well, and their contagions tend to be different. And one way that I like to um, talk about this difference is that the number of exposures and the identity of people who expose you to a contagion matters a lot in the social realm, not so much in the, the infectious disease realm, right? So the dumb example that I use all the time is if you have like 10 friends telling you to go see the new Wonder Woman movie, that has more impact than one friend telling you 10 times 
10 times in a row to go see the movie, right? It matters who, who signals to you, who sends you an exposure to that idea. In the realm of infectious disease, if you're healthy, whether it's one friend sneezing on you 10 times or 10 friends sneezing on you once each, well, really, it's like roughly the same exposure. And maybe there's genetic diversity in the different sneezes, but really, it's like you're going to get sick or you're not. And, and you can sum up those exposures in a linear way, yeah. right? So, so models of infectious disease tend to be linear in, that, in, in terms of exposure, and that's not quite true in the social sciences. So social sciences that had those, all those features, super exponential spread, discontinuity, like importance of clustering. Um, so I was wondering, like, if you, if you have data, and that was in 2015, if you have data about the incidence of, a, of an infectious disease through time, how can you tell whether it's, it's a, a classic case of a classic model from public health, interacting contagions like the ones I described, or this type of social contagions that spread through social reinforcement? How, could, how can you tell these things apart? Then it took it took years to like get a negative results, which is well, actually, you're probably never going to be able to tell a social contagion time series apart from interacting contagion time series, right? Especially if you don't know with what it might be interacting. So that was a negative result. The answer to my my question was no, you can't do it. But that turned out to be like just as interesting because you know I did mention that. Models of interacting contagions get really, really complicated, right? It's just there are, there's so many states I can be in. So if I'm looking at N contagions, I need to follow, like, do I have this one? Do I have this one, that one? And I have so many assumptions to make about how they interact with each other. But if in some way I can't tell what comes out of those models or that dynamical system apart from social models, then why not use social models in the public health space, right? They're, they're much simpler. And while they don't make sense, like this idea of social reinforcement doesn't quite make sense from a disease perspective. But if it's useful as a forecasting tool or, or as a modeling tool, then, then maybe we should embrace that, right? So that was the idea is that these things seem to spread, seem to spread, like you'd expect social contagion to spread. And that helps us understand, like, who can leverage the work that has been done for decades in the social sciences to hopefully, like, better understand interactive contagions in the future. Kind of a, a stray question for me after listening to you talk about this is whether this would have, whether you would have gotten the same results 50 years ago, or whether what we're really looking at here is, is, a, is a transition in the structure of society into this sort of more virtualized kind of network structure? Yeah, I think, I think we just have a lot more data. So we've been able to track social contagions like never before because of social media. Like there's always been people, you know, refusing to take social distancing measure, but we just never knew that. And we didn't quite know what messaging they were using to talk to each other. But now it's all like out, mostly out in the open and on social media. So we do know a lot more and we're able to look at the interaction of social contagions with infectious disease like never before. Before coronavirus, I think this might be my new favorite example, although it's a you know, terrible situation, but from a dynamical system perspective, it's just, it's just so rich. My, my previous example that I, I was using before to talk about this was the measles outbreak in, in the Philippines, right? And you might have heard me talk about this before because I do talk about it a lot, but it's just like a fascinating system. 
So uh, the Philippines also have quite a bit of dengue, right? And dengue has four strains, right? So dengue one, two, three, four, and they can interact in some ways because uh, you, you, you can get a phenomenon by which like if you've had dengue two and then you know six months later you see dengue three, your immune response might still be good enough so that, so that your antibodies like tied to the virus, but not strong enough to, to neutralize the virus. And really what you end up doing is that you're just providing sort of a genetic material disguise to the virus and helping it you know, invade your cell. So by having had dengue two six months ago, you're making yourself more susceptible now to other strains of dengue potentially. So what this meant was that in the Philippines, they, they introduced, I think they were one of the first country to introduce a tetravalent dengue vaccine, meaning a vaccine that works for all four strains. But did it, it didn't work equally for all four strains. So a lot of especially young kids that got the vaccine ended up um, getting a reaction by which they were more susceptible to certain strain of dengue than if they didn't get the vaccine at all. So the government, as far as I know, like did the right thing of pulling back on the vaccine and, and messaging publicly saying, okay, this vaccine puts certain population at risk. So you're only going to get this vaccine if you're above a certain age or if you've had, you know, experienced dengue before. Messaging around infectious disease as we're, as we're seeing now in the United States and, and pretty much everywhere in the world is just very, very tricky. So what people heard was not, you know, take the vaccine only under these conditions, but really people heard like, see the vaccine is dangerous. Uh, we knew all along and, and it did spark like a huge anti-vaccination movement in the Philippines, which is why there's now a big measles outbreak. And I like this story because it's, it's, it's a terrible story whose origins are, are like very well understood interactions between dengue strains. Everyone involved was meaning well and then this interaction between dengue strains interacted with the existing anti-vaccination movement, which then like fed back into measles, which, which spread um, in many countries now. So, so it used to be like my favorite example, but now, especially in China and the US, we, we're, we're seeing so many patterns of how social, like viral messaging online and online media are interacting with the spread of coronavirus that I think all of this together is gonna to be a big wake up call that we need to treat messaging around public health data as public health in and of itself, right? So how people talk about diseases should, should be considered public health and should be included in our models. I want to get you back to your working group, but before I let you go, there were just a couple of quick questions from the social media audience that I, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to. One is about what kind of tools, software, and capabilities you find you and your colleagues are currently lacking in your daily work, where the bottlenecks are for you in research, and then possibly how amateurs could support this research. And if there's anything that the, this, the citizen science audience can do to assist right now. Yes, yeah, so there's been like different efforts throughout the last decades to try and get more people involved. So we've been, you know, in the United States and, and Canada, which is the two countries I know best, we've been okay, but not incredible at uh, infectious disease surveillance. And that's one way that I think, you know, the general public could really, really help. So there are different in initiatives like flu near you is one where basically, you know, it's self-reported flu cases is the idea or flu-like symptoms. And that gives us, you know, a better idea than a lot of official data that, that comes out because really what, what better way than to have a distributed surveillance network that just rely on, on individuals. There are different initiatives like that to try and get citizen science involved in disease surveillance. And really I think going forward, that's gonna be critical both for 
existing outbreaks that we existing pandemics that we just live with, like the seasonal flu, or emerging outbreaks um, that that like coronavirus right now. The second part of the question, I think, is uh, what resources we're lacking. It's been really interesting. So at the University of Vermont and at the Vermont Complex System Center, where I'm, where I'm based, we're lucky to be partnered with Google. And it was very interesting to see companies like that that have their own problems to deal with, but they did reach out and offered you know, cloud services and, and computing powers and, and all that. So, so technology is a big issue because you know, public health science is well-funded, but not to the extent that I think it should. And uh, it's been interesting to see a lot of people offering help and resources in that way, either, either computing resources or just help sharing the data. I think being critical of the messaging that you see online, just reading to make sure what you're reading is correct and, and, and validated by other sources, and then making sure that you spread the validated messages far and wide and, and try and make sure that um, misinformation doesn't spread as much is probably more important than the two previous things I mentioned. Last question for you. If you were going to advise people to, to track this at home with limited time and attention, if you could only offer one or a handful of data points to, to keep an eye on, what would those be? Like, what do you consider the most important factors here to be staying on top of? You're talking to Carl Bergstrom too, right? Are you talking to him later? I will be, yes, yeah. Can you ask him that question? I will definitely <laughs> ask him that question. <laughs> All right, so now I'm just passing it along. All right, sounds good. Well, well, thank you. Get a misinformation expert, so you know. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for your insights today. This was great. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.